The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. How are you, Mars Hill? Good to see you. Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, please open up to John chapter 1, verse 14. We are in my favorite gospel, and now we're in one of my favorite verses in the gospel of John. So I'm very excited and honored uh, and humbled to be able to preach this message this morning and to learn what the Lord has for us. As you are opening up your Bibles to that one verse, let's think about where we've been so far. This prologue to John's gospel, this overture is one way we described it, has slowly and surely been unfolding something before our eyes. And that unfolding is ending today. It's being revealed in John 1.14. John begins with the word, this power, this authority, this might, this wisdom. And we learn that this word is creator, that this word is God, and that somehow, mysteriously, this word is also with God. So it's with him, but it's separated. This word, we learn, is a source of life, and it's a light that comes to a dark world that was created by the word, but doesn't recognize him. There are some, though, who recognize him. They believe in this word, and to them the word gives, or gives those that believe him the right authority to become children of God. This faith doesn't come to them by natural descent, by blood, by their race, by their tribe. It doesn't come to them by the will of the flesh, so the things that they do, the good works that they perform. It doesn't even come by the will of man, their own desires but it's completely by the will of God, the word, the one with God. Who is this word? Like we all know the answer, right? You got the Sunday school thing ready, like it's Jesus, I know this one, watch, watch, I'm gonna answer it correctly. But if you were reading this for the first time, how would you know? How would you know? We don't because John has not told us who this word is yet, little by little he's been, Revealing to us, and finally, we learn who this God, this with God, this creator, this light, this life, is the Son. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This one verse alone gets at the heart of Christianity. It gets straight to the core of the Christian faith. When you think about what John is saying here, the word who's God and with God became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. He's full of grace and truth. There's a lot of things going on in our minds, right? Maybe for some of us, that's inconceivable. Some of us, it might be scandalous. Like, how can God come to us? How can he be a person? Doesn't that break the system? For some of us, it might be confusing. Others, it might be comforting. Some, it might be strange. Some, it could be familiar. For all of us, though, I think it should be glorifying because that's the way John takes it. He structures this sentence inspired by the Holy Spirit in a very specific way to get us to see that the Word is the Son, that He's dwelling, and that His dwelling somehow relates to God's glory. We would breeze right past this, but John is very careful with how he arranges this sentence. 
And so what I've done for us is, is, is color-coded it. it. That actually is the way it looks in the Greek, the blue and the red. I don't know if you knew that, but if you have a Greek edition, it's blue and red there. That's not true. Are we awake this morning? I just want to make sure. Okay, okay, great. Some of you are like, well, that's really interesting. The scribes were like blue and then red. Uh, no. Let's look at this. Word and son belong together, don't they? We know that because we've been waiting. Okay, John, who is this word? Finally, he tells us the word dwelt among us and he's the son. So that's a really easy connection for us to make. So we link those two things together. What's not easy for us to make a connection to is dwelt and glory. Like what do those two things have to do with each other? A first century Jewish reader would have heard those two words and said, wait, 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 <laughs> what are you trying to tell me about this Jesus? That he dwells with his people? and that God's glory is revealed in his dwelling? We'll come back to that, but let's look at this first connection. The word and the son. The word who is God is God's son. The word who is God became flesh. The son, the technical term here is incarnated. Incarnation. You've heard that word before, right? Has nothing to do with flowers. And I know carnation sounds like something that you would see on a Taco Bell menu, carne, but actually you're a lot closer than you think. Carne comes from the Latin carnis, which means flesh or body. And when you hear the word incarnation, what it means is in Latin, in, and we just stole that word from Latin straight up, told Latin you're done with that, I'll take it. In means in, and carnis means meat, flesh, body, literally enfleshed, enfleshed, the Son of God, enfleshed. In other words, the Son of God became a son of man as tangible as you see me standing on this stage today. He wasn't a son of man who became a son of God. He didn't graduate to Godhood. He wasn't adopted by the Father at his baptism. He's not a son of God who inhabited a son of man. One day there was a guy named Jesus and just eyes rolled in the back of his head and the son possessed him and used his body and then when his body was done, the son left. No. He's not the son of God who merely appeared like a man. He didn't just look like it, like an aberration or a ghost. He literally became a man. The son of God became a son of man. Yet even though the eternal word of God became man, he didn't stop being what he always was and always is. He is very true God. He's very true man. He's the God man. We get that right? Or is it super confusing? It's okay if it's super confusing. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, and they discuss the godhood and the humanity of Jesus in terms of hypostasis. Whenever a theologian makes up a word, it means they don't know what's going on, and they want to hide behind that term, right? So even the most brilliant minds trying to reconcile what it means for Jesus, the Son, to be very truly God, very truly man, it's a mystery. John's not making this claim alone. John's not the only one in the New Testament that's like, hey, I think Jesus is also God. Paul declared that God was manifested in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh in 1 Timothy 3. The author of Hebrews says that Christ had days of his flesh. So the one that ascended from life or from death to life, he actually lived a life in flesh. Later, John is going to give a very strong warning against denying this fact. In the second letter of John, he writes to churches saying, 
For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's very important that we understand the Son of God came to be a son of man. In the reverse, we have a promise in 1 John that by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So kind of reversing that warning, if you don't think that Jesus came in the flesh, you're deceived or a deceiver, and any spirit that does comes from God. The Son of God becoming a Son of Man. That's really profoundly strange, isn't it? And, and it's quite a paradox when you think about it. The infinitely strong God who created the stars in the heavens was born beneath them in the night sky as a vulnerable baby. The unfathomably creative God who designed human procreation and the womb was himself knitted in the womb of a virgin. The king of the universe who enjoys for eternity worship by angels and incredible beings was welcomed to earth by shepherd boys under threat of destruction by a pseudo-king. And the loving God who cradles the cosmos in his arms was himself cradled by the calloused hands of a first century Jewish carpenter. Very strange. Why? Why did the author of life come to earth? Why did he come to be scorned, to be mocked, to be murdered, to be resurrected? Essentially, this strange, this paradoxical, this hypostatic union, this incarnation occurred so that God could accomplish a rescue mission. He came to earth on a rescue mission to save us from an evil tyrant. And this is something that deep within every single human being we yearn for, even if we don't know it, and even if we don't recognize it. As humanity, we were created for communion with our creator. But we lost it. And we know that there's something wrong with the world. Everybody does. But we don't know how to fix it. We try, and generation after generation, we fail. We recognize that we're too weak to fix it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're part of the problem. And so we yearn for something bigger, something up there or out there to come and to rescue us. And we're creative creatures, aren't we? And because we're creative creatures and we yearn for God himself to come and rescue us, we, we can't help but tip our cards and reveal to the world that this is indeed our desire. And we do it through the stories we tell, the artwork we make. It's why the ancients wrote poems and epics about the gods coming down to earth and rescuing humanity. It's why poets like Virgil, who looked around him in his time and saw injustices, didn't know what else to say, but looked up for answers, saying, justice return, 
the first age of man, and a new progeny descends from heaven. Something from up there has to come down here to fix this because we can't do it ourselves. And even today, it's why we will line up at the movie theater at midnight to see the next Marvel superhero movie, to watch supermen and superwomen saving humanity. It's why if you watched the latest Infinity Wars movie, when Thor came out of nowhere, a type of a god-man, and thrust his axe into the chest of Thanos, you fist-pumped, right? I mean, take yourself out of the situation for a second. Why write that story? What is the deep-seated desire of the authors in our deep-seated desire as the viewers to respond so positively to that image. It's so attractive to us, this God-man who comes and kills the enemy who is oppressing us and destroying us. But Thor's not real. Sadly, these poems and the epics that we're communicating our desires, they're not real either. The only truth that they're communicating is that we indeed want what the stories are delivering. There's no reality to them. They're myths, both ancient and modern. C.S. Lewis is a very brilliant writer, and he actually specialized in medieval mythology. And one of the things he said that brought him to Christ was noticing in all of these myths patterns that began to develop, almost like signs pointing to a direction that the authors themselves didn't realize, but upon conversion, he recognized even the pagans desired that a God would come and rescue and redeem. For him, all the world's myths were pointing to Christ. Think about all the stories that we grew up with or are growing up with, the defeat of evil by a conquering hero, the collapse of hell by the kingdom of good, the triumphant prince who storms the castle, slays the dragon, and rescues the damsel. The gods who come to earth to rescue humans. The dying god who rises again. None of these myths are true, but they communicate a very true desire in us. And fortunately, there is one story that fulfills that desire. A story told by God, the author of reality and history through the revelation of his son. And so, Lewis, looking at all these stories and recognizing this, summarizes the heart of Christianity is a myth or story, which is also a fact. That these desires we've had as humanity come true in the incarnation. It is the desire that we all express in our stories, but it's a story that's actually, truly, historically factual. It came true. There's a very real condescension of the Son of God from heaven to earth, a very real incarnation of the Son of God into humanity, a very real, very historical, very factual story become fact in the incarnation. The Son of God became Son of Man. And it's something that we've always wanted to happen. But he didn't become a son of man like the gods of the Greco-Roman myths, right? Who just temporarily look like humans and then leave. Not like the gods of Eastern religions presently who are themselves 
indistinguishable from creation. Not like the God of Islam, who is so far removed from his creation that the very idea of donning flesh is appalling. It's the highest sin you can commit. And it's not like Thor or Iron Man or Hulk or Wonder Woman or Batman, who are merely creatures with faults and flaws. The Son of God, in his perfection, became a son of man. What a most unexpected and familiar thing. It's unexpected on the one hand because, come on, who would believe that God became a human being? And yet it's familiar because that God would become a human being is what we desire collectively as his image bearers. The Son of God is our Emmanuel, God with us. He came to us to experience what we experience, to live a life like we live, to laugh and to cry and to sweat and to eat and to reminisce and to hurt and to work and to play and to face temptation and to learn and to walk with us. It's an indescribably beautiful thing. And in one sense, in scripture, people should have seen this coming, right? I mean, think about the idea of God coming and dwelling with his people. I can think of two really good examples. The first one goes all the way back to the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3 reveals to us that God walked around in creation. Verse 8 says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But in shame, they were hiding because they had sinned. And God acted as if this behavior was abnormal, them hiding, and asked the question, where are you? And we're left to imagine that's not the question God began every day with. That he would come, he would find them, and he would say, there you are, Adam, Eve, good morning. How is it with your soul? What have you learned this week? Why do you suppose I made platypuses look the way that they do? What are you learning about one another? Would you like me to teach you about love? You see, before sin, God dwelt freely with us, and we were designed to dwell freely with him. But we know the story. We lost that. Through sin, we were expelled from God's presence, and we could no longer dwell together. It doesn't mean we don't want that as we see in humanity's stories. But it does mean there was a very real severing, a separation leading us to death. But God is not one to allow sin to win. And so he begins to redeem us by choosing one nation, Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt. And one evening, some few millennia ago, God's spirit of judgment came through the land which resulted in the death of Egypt's firstborn sons. And with this death came Israel's new birth and liberation from Egypt. And when they were in the wilderness, wandering around, God decided to collect them together at the foot of Mount Sinai and announce to them, I am going to dwell with you. He gathered them at the foot of the mountain and promised in Exodus 19, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. In other words, I can choose any nation I want to, but I choose you. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, part of this new relationship was God's presence with his people. 
And after giving them some specific instructions on purifying the community so that God's holiness would not destroy them when his glory appeared to them, God said, one of the ways we're going about doing this is that you shall make a tabernacle. Mishkan in Hebrew, Eskenazin in Greek. You shall make a tabernacle. It's going to be built with wood and silver and bronze. It's going to have curtains. The curtains are going to be really pretty, purple. It's going to have angels in them, woven. It's going to be made blue as well. It's going to have a roof above it all. There's going to be furniture of tables and lamps. There's going to be an altar. You're going to divide this tabernacle into the holy place and the most holy place and inside the most holy place. Only one high priest a year can go in there because the Ark of the Covenant is going to be there. And in this tabernacle, the priests will offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. Its function was to reveal God to the people and to sanctify them. And God says as much in Exodus 29. He says, and there, God said, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. Do you hear John's gospel ringing in this description of the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The people of Israel built a tabernacle, Eskenazim, where the glory of God would come to meet his people. And God would dwell with his people. His people would be sanctified by God's glory. This is the second pairing because John uses the same word as Kenison to communicate that Jesus dwelt with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. God, the word, descends, becomes flesh to a sinful people, the world, so that he may dwell with them, tabernacle, and that they might see his glory and thereby be sanctified because of the presence of his glory there. That's the beauty of this message, right? It's not just telling us about who God is, but it also tells us what God has done, what he's doing and what he promises to continue to do that we would be able to be redeemed to a point where we would return to standing in the presence of God and in his glory. And this by Christ and the glory of him. Later, John is going to record that the same glory that descended from heaven to Israel is actually Christ. Referencing Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, where he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And that there were seraphim who called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Jesus said of this vision, speaking about himself, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And when the Son came to the New Testament disciples and apostles and tabernacled with him, they got to rejoice in a prophecy that was made by Zechariah centuries earlier. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And we too today, sitting in this room as believers, have a hope that an even fuller fulfillment 
of a prophecy will come true. In Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In a sense, a return to the garden of what we lost, but better because we can never lose it again. John is making an incredible statement here that the tabernacle of Israel was a foreshadowing of the incarnation, the Son of God becoming a Son of Man. In other words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the tabernacle, the very presence of God dwelling and living among his people. This is why the incarnation is so important to our faith, because we see types and shadows and foreshadows all throughout the Old Testament until finally we see it revealed. Right here in verse 14, chapter 1 of John. This is why Lewis calls it the heart of Christianity, because without the incarnation, there is no Christianity. So it should be no surprise then that holding this belief of the incarnation can be a bit difficult for people. Today, nobody really has a problem saying that Jesus lived in the flesh. Yeah, he was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, a philosopher. Uh, he said some really nice things, but you know, of course he wasn't God. That's impossible. So the thing that you know, we, we think about today or we wrestle with in culture today, is the idea that divinity can't come in contact with humanity because either divinity doesn't exist, naturalism, or he doesn't exist in the way that you think. But in the early church, they wrestled with just the opposite question. It wasn't the problem of trying to convince people that Jesus was God. They wrestled with trying to convince people that Jesus was man. Not very difficult for us, but very difficult for them. There was a heresy called Gnosticism. It's just in the water at this time. And they would say, of course Jesus was divine, but he certainly was not God. Because matter is evil. The whole project of salvation is to escape the flesh. So why in the world would God come into flesh? And the more you deny the deity or humanity of Christ, the more we drift into one of these two heresies. The more you deny Christ's deity, the more you drift into Arianism. So it was something we talked about a few weeks ago, that Christ was created, not creator. And the more you deny Christ's humanity, the more you drift into another heresy, Gnosticism. Jesus did not come in the flesh. He merely appeared that way. If you were to talk to a Gnostic in the first century and they were to describe you a scenario where you would be walking with Jesus along the beach shore, you would turn around and look, and there would only be one set of footprints. Why? Because Jesus merely appears to be a man. He's an apparition, a ghost, a spirit. You're the one with flesh, and he's come to teach you how to escape that flesh. Wrong. He came to redeem that flesh. Because if God didn't take on flesh, he couldn't redeem a fallen world. If the Son of God didn't become a son of man, a true son of man, then he couldn't be tempted every way that we are, yet without sin. And if the last Adam didn't become a man, then he couldn't have wrested away all power and authority from Satan, which was lost by the first Adam, who was truly a man. In other words, with John's concept of this authority to become children of God in mind, if the Son of God did not become a son of man, then the sons of man could not become sons of God. 
Let me say that again. That's very important. If the Son of Man, or I'm sorry, if the Son of God did not become a Son of Man, then we, sons of men, could not become sons of God with all the inheritance that it comes with being adopted as a daughter or a son of God. We're sinners. We're depraved. We're infected with sin. We're victims of sin, and we're victimizers of sin. Paul Relaying Isaiah says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're fallen, in short. But what are we fallen of? We have fallen short the what of God? Glory. So the project of the incarnation is to return God's glory to our life. This is ultimately our hope that by faith we have died with Christ, justification. In grace, we rise with Christ, sanctification. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be glorified in Christ, glorification. Not to some kind of equal status with God, not to some kind of participation in his being, God forbid, but an eternally dependent reception and enjoyment of the glory of God, just the way that we were created to be. So that we may see the hope of Christ in us complete when he says, praying to the Father, the glory that I have given, or that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. An ancient theologian, Athanasius, put it this way, for this is why the word became man. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. And the reformer John Calvin put it another way, the work to be performed by the mediator was to restore us to the divine favor so as to make us, instead of sons of men, sons of God, and instead of heirs of hell, heirs of a heavenly kingdom. It is impossible for us to ascend to God. And so by his grace and mercy, he decides to descend to us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, bringing with him his glory, which is full of grace and truth. What does that mean? His glory full of grace and truth. We can get that he came but for what purpose, John tells us, so that we would see his glory, and his glory is filled with grace and truth. Well, John's already kind of begun to tell us how that grace and truth affects our life. He started earlier in, in verses uh, 12 and 13. He says, to all who did receive the word, the Son, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now he's telling us exactly how that all works out. Well, if it's not my race, if it's not my works, and it's not my desires, well, how, how does this incarnation of Christ save me? Through grace and through truth. John has completed that thought. This will of God is that you would see his glory and that his glory would sanctify you and that you would be sanctified by his grace and you would be sanctified by his truth, that by his grace we would be given through faith the right to become children of God and that by his truth we would know that the Son is the light and the life of men and there is no other place where you can get that. 
And by experiencing this grace and experiencing this truth, or rather knowing this truth, we can conclude that it is truly not by our blood, by our tribes, by our race, by our descent, but it's by God's grace and truth in Christ alone that we are saved. And we're saved not by our flesh, like our works, but it's by God's grace and truth in Christ alone. And it's not by our wills, not even our desires, but by God's grace and truth in Christ alone. I mean, think about how backwards this seems to the world who doesn't recognize their creator. The glorification of the king of kings means an unglorious death on a rebel's cross. But that's grace and that's truth. And the grace of the Lord of Lords meant an ungracious descent into death after his crucifixion. And the truth that comes from the very source of truth is the unbelievable thought that Christ not only incarnated, but resurrected from death. It's so backwards, isn't it, this incarnation thing? It upsets our whole worldview, and it should. It upsets our desires, and it should. Because our worldview and our desires must be replaced by grace and by truth. Why? Because otherwise we would have it the way we want it. And you don't want it the way you want it. Our way, our truth, leads to death. It is only the way, the truth, as we will learn in John 14, in Christ Jesus that leads to life. We want it so badly not to be this way, though. We want it to be our natural descent. We want it to be our present tribe. We want it to be our groups. We want it to be our people. I just want to be a part of this community, and whatever that means, that saves me, right? So I want it to be my nation. I just want to be born here in America, and I want to go to church, and I want to passively be accepted into God's salvation because he's pleased with the nation, and he's pleased with the church. We're the righteous ones. Everybody else is unrighteous. We want it to be our politics. I want to just look at the options and sign on to one option or another, the one that I think is right, and then that somehow translate into a reward later. And so we put all of our time and effort into politics. We even want our church to save us. So really, the name of the game becomes, just pick the right church. And then once you've found the right church, just passively uh, gain salvation through the absorption of teaching and the expression of worship. We forget that the Christian faith is an active transformation. We also really want it by our works, right? We want to know what the concrete rules are, and I want to follow them as if we can. And we want it to be maybe public works, get out into the world and do good things. And if we do good things, that translates into salvation, merits me a reward. We want it to be our godliness that saves us. Look, if I just have the right intention, like, God will reward me, right? And I'll say this, within evangelicalism, there is a really difficult to discern idol, which is, if I just have the right beliefs, I'll be saved. If I can just think the right thing, have the exact precise right theology, then I will be saved. If you put your confidence in what you know and not in what Christ did, how is that not an idol? And we forget that the enemy knows the Bible and theology far better than any of us ever could. But the thing that separates you from him is that you can obey by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he refuses to. So we think, man, if I could just think the right things or do the right things, 
And then if I can think the right things and do the right things and impose them on other people, God will be happy with that too, right? That's legalism. This is what we actually want to save us. But the problem is, none of it does. And praise be to God that Jesus Christ in the, in the incarnation came to save us, came to model what it means to dwell in the glory of God. He came by his natural descent, the Jewish Messiah, to invite us into his nation. He came to allow us to participate in his politics, his kingdom advancing in a dark world as representatives and ambassadors of God's grace and truth. And he came to show us that as a church, we are members of his body, his hands and his feet on earth as an echo of the incarnation 2,000 years ago and a foreshadowing of his return again in our future. It's by his work alone that we are saved. We're very Protestant. We're very fond of saying, oh, I'm not saved by works, right? That's not true. You are saved by works. They're just not yours. And the works that you are saved by come to us through and by the incarnation. It was his faithfulness to God's law. It was his public work of preaching and teaching in the kingdom. It's his godliness, his perfect righteousness, his holiness in the midst of a fallen world in which he did not sin. That's what saves us. He did all the right things, all the right time, without exceptions, and faith in his faithfulness to the Father saves us. And most of all, and most precious of all, it's not our desire, John says, not our will, but his, that we are saved. His passion for our lost souls, his feeling of love towards us when we were his enemies, his decision to draw us to ourselves and clasp us in the immovable grasp of his hands. And he proved all of this by condescending in humility to come to us and die. Praise be to God, we do not get our desires fulfilled in salvation, but that the incarnation, that through the incarnation Christ has come and by the Spirit he gives us a new heart with new desires and then fulfills those. Why? So that no matter what, God receives all the glory. That his decision to come, his glory. His work on earth, his glory. His death on a cross, his glory. His resurrection, his glory. Our redemption to receive and experience that glory, his glory. Everything is about him. And it is encapsulated in this one sentence that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Today, we want to celebrate that through a very old act of worship, the Lord's Supper, a public proclamation that as a body of believers, we believe the incarnation, we believe Christ's death pays for our sins, we believe that his resurrection seals the deal against death and that we anticipate Christ's coming again in our future. Jesus inaugurated this meal by continuing a very old practice in ancient Judaism, the Passover Seder, which reminded the Jews of God's redemption of them from Egypt. And part of this meal was the breaking of bread 
and the drinking of a cup of wine. And when Christ broke the bread, he blessed it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, my very real body, the body I incarnated into. And by these stripes, you will be healed. And then he takes the cup and he blesses it. And he says, this cup is my blood shed for you, poured out for you of the new covenant, the blood of my very real son of man, flesh, body that I gained in incarnation. You see, the incarnation, very important. And now today, as Christians, as believers, those who confess that Jesus is Lord, we get to, as a community, participate through self-reflection, asking for forgiveness of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that those sins are forgiven. How? By the reception of these elements remind us of what actually happened with the Son of Man, the Son of God, on the cross some 2,000 years ago. That you were healed, your sins have been paid for because they've already been punished. And yet it's not just that, it's also a celebration of Christ's coming again. So as a church, if you are a believer, I would ask that you would take some time to reflect on your own sinfulness and ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would be forgiven. And come and join the rest of your brothers and sisters, those of us who have been adopted by faith into the family at one of five tables around the stage in the Lord's Supper. If you are not a believer, we would ask that you would abstain, but that you would pay special attention to those who do come up and make a public proclamation about uh, their faith in the Lord Jesus and ask them what drove them to the table so that they may share the gospel with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent the Son of God to become a son of man so that we, sons of men, might become sons and daughters of God. Lord, we know that the incarnation is such a mystery to us, and yet you're not asking us to understand it completely. You're asking us to be affected by it and transformed by it completely. Lord, part of this we recognize is confession of our own shortcomings and sin, and so we lay those before you now. We nail them to the cross, and we give you praise that you resurrected the Son three days later. Father, we thank you, and with this meal we proclaim not only the goodness of your death and the glory of your resurrection, but the joy of your coming. When one day, as Revelation 21 says, you will dwell with us forever in glory. You will be our God and we will be your people. We look forward to that day and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.